Today on the Awesome Book Club podcast, we are going to be noting Black History Month, and we are going to be doing that by discussing Between the World and Me by ta Coates. And this book's a tough one to pin down, so I'm going to let the blurb from this book's page on Amazon do the talking. In a profound work that pivots from the biggest questions about American history and ideals to the most intimate concerns of a father for his son, ta Coates offers a powerful new framework for understanding our nation's history and current crisis. Americans have built an empire on the idea of race, a falsehood that damages us all but falls most heavily on the bodies of black women and men, bodies exploited through slavery and segregation, and today threatened, locked up, and murdered out of all proportion. What is it like to inhabit a black body and find a way to live within it? And how can we all honestly reckon with this fraught history and free ourselves from its burden? Between the World and Me is ta Coates' attempt to answer these questions in a letter to his adolescent son. Coates shares with his son and readers the story of his awakening to the truth about his place in the world through a series of revelatory experiences from Howard University to Civil War battlefields, from the south side of Chicago to Paris, from his childhood home to the living rooms of mothers whose children's lives were taken as American plunder. Beautifully woven from personal narrative, reimagined history, and fresh, emotionally charged reportage, Between the World and Me clearly illuminates the past, bracingly confronts our present, and offers a transcendent vision for a way forward. We really hope that you guys pick this book up. You can find it on Amazon. The hardcover is less than 15 bucks, but you can get the paperback for 7 But if you ain't got time to pick it up, don't be afraid to listen. It is a amazing amazing book and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did between the world and me by Tanahasi Coates all right welcome 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 to the awesome book club podcast we have a name we are real, we have a new member, and we have a new book. We have a lot of exciting things for you for today's episode. So excited for you to join us. We are reading a number one New York Times bestseller by ta Coates, and the book is called Between the World and Me. This is a National Book Award winner. It's a freaking amazing read, and Toni Morrison says it's required reading, and if she's saying that, that's why we're here. I just want to take a moment before we start and get into it and digging into the text to introduce one of the most important men in my life and, and an amazing mind and a, a great addition to this podcast, Mr. Daniel James Vandekubring. So we are now four. Welcome, Danny. Can you can you give us some intro? Tell us some things about yourself. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, my life in many ways has been shaped and formed by the rest of the members of this podcast. Um, so it's, it's a real honor to be included in, in the conversation, uh, and I'm looking forward to continuing to learn and grow with these guys. And, uh, I think the motto of my life, uh, for the last couple of years has been something along the lines of, uh, I'm not trying to be right. I'm just trying to get it right. And so that's what I hope we can kind of work towards together in this podcast. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. Well, we're excited to have you. And you know, in terms of this podcast is about diverse perspectives, about hearing different voices. And so we're excited to bring your voice into it. And I'm really excited to read 
the book that we have because it's Between the World and Me by ta Coates. The whole purpose of the book is that he's writing kind of a letter of his life story to his son and trying to explain what the world's going to be like as he grows up. And I, I watched some interviews about it and he, he explains that that's not exactly what it turned out to be. It just kind of turned out to be a memoir that he hopes his son reads, but he actually just talks to his son about these things. <laughs> so it's not a, <laughs> not a literal practical letter to his son. But I found it really interesting, really engaging. Uh, um, and it's, it's definitely new ground for us as a podcast because it's kind of thinking about an experience that's different than ours, but is explicitly based in present day. So we, you know, talked about things happening in Nazi Germany. We've talked about Hiroshima. We talked about Sapiens, which covers a wide swath of history. And now it's, this is written in 2013. And it's about kind of the, the experience of African-Americans and ta Coates' experience in the world. So I'm, I'm really excited to dive into it. I think that it's a good like stretch for all of us to be thinking about this and, and integrating his perspective into our lives. And I wanted to just level set a little bit at the beginning and talk about kind of where this book hits us as, uh, as readers. So the question, first of all, is, you know, what's your level of expertise with this kind of stuff? Like, have you read a lot of books by African-American art, uh, authors about their experience and, or was this pretty new to you? Taylor, kick it off. Yeah. Uh, I'll be honest and say I'm a complete noob in this category. <laughs> uh, I haven't done a lot of reading um, specifically by African-American writers, though I'm sure I've read books uh, from that perspective. Um, I mean, us as a group of people come from a small, predominantly white town in Oregon, uh, where like I'm pretty sure our school had maybe two black kids in like the entire school. So that perspective was pretty much missed for us growing up. So this read was insane to me. Like Sapiens pissed me off, but this probably pissed me off even more. Uh, just getting like, like I just felt so ignorant after reading it. And you know, like it's, it's, 2018 we know this kind of stuff is real but hearing it like literally diving into the mind of uh ta Coates was just amazing like the way he phrases things just really hit home uh in a new way for me um and I'm really excited to kind of see what, what you guys thought. I'm sure we have very similar thoughts, honestly. Uh, but yeah, it was it was intense. It was really sad. Um, I felt a lot of guilt. Um, I feel like, like I had a lot to work on. And like it was almost like a, <clears throat> a call to action, almost. Like, I don't want to be a dreamer, <laughs> which we hear that phrase a lot in the book. So... That's uh, that's my quick intro to this book for me. That's powerful stuff, and I feel like there's a lot there to unpack, and I'm, I'm excited to kind of talk through it. Um, Rhett, take it away. Yeah, Taylor said that uh, this book made him angry, um, and I never once 
Well, that's not entirely true. I did feel angry a few times, but more so, I think the emotion that really uh, was brought out in me was uh, sadness um, and the guilt that Taylor talks about. Um, I felt like uh, I like my com- I, I I really like noticed like my own complacency and like <laughs> you know issues of race and um, that sort of thing, um, especially my younger years. Um, but I think, I think the parts to me that really, really resonated the most were the parts about like, um, parenting in a way, like there was like a lot of moments where, especially like early on in section two, where he was like speaking directly to his son about the circumstances of his birth and like the circumstances of his upbringing, the way that, uh, ta did the best that he could along with his, um, partner sort of contrasting that with the parenting style that his own parents had and the parents of other black children in his uh, city where he grew up. I don't know, like that stuff just like really, really hit home with me in a very emotional way. Just like really broke my heart. And it was like, I don't know, it was, it was really hard to read because it's so personal. It felt like I was kind of intruding on a very, very personal moment between a father and a son, you know, especially in a culture that there's not that much tenderness between fathers and their children. I don't know. It just struck me really hard. That's awesome. Oh gosh. This, the, even these intros are making me so excited to, to dig in more and, and like start talking content. So I'm, I'm pumped. Yeah. And real quick, sorry, I put my mic down. So, but uh, I realized that I wanted to say I too, uh, my education in this, uh, area is really lacking and i was looking over my bookshelf and i for the life of me could not name a single uh book that i had read by a black person other than tony morrison as well um so there you go i'll talk about this when i just talk about my background a little bit but i think this could be a good jumping off point for all of us to enter into this world further so um danny take it away yeah i i would definitely um you know, identify with everybody else in that my comfort level level or level of exposure was was nothing before this. And um, I think diving into that perspective um, is, is something that's very powerful. Um, to be honest, I think because of that lack of perspective or we talked about, you know, I mean, we had at, at most we at any one time we had, you know, three three black students in high school with us. And I think I, I struggled a lot thinking about how I was supposed to interpret this book and what it was supposed to mean to me and what right I had to feel certain things like, um, and what I didn't have a right to feel. And I mean, it was, um, I think the, the content of the book was powerful, but I think the internal dialogue with myself that it set off was for me, the most impactful part about reading the book. Whoa. Oh my gosh. I'm seriously listening to these summaries and I'm just like, let's start talking about everything. Why are we doing the summary thing? Let's get to the content. But I, I think this is still good. And I'm, uh, we'll, we'll like follow up on that internal dialogue piece for sure. So my background and the reason I picked this book is I've been diving into these issues intentionally, I think for a couple years I'm a, I'm also a white man, so there's a, a limit to how much I can know about these topics and understand because it's not lived experience as much as it is read experience and listened experience. Um, but I definitely 
have gained a lot in that process. And I, and I'd really recommend, well, and I'd caution us to know that there are thousands of books out there by black authors about the African-American experience, about the black experience. So I think there's, you know, part of this is not reading this book and taking it as gospel because there's, you know, people on both sides, people that just black authors that disagree with what Ta-Nehisi Coates is saying. So, you know, knowing that this is one voice of many, and then also knowing that I think there's a ton of good that can come from that internal dialogue and struggle. And I, I feel like I've learned pieces from every thing I've encountered. Like I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, which I is one of my favorite books of all time. And I'd highly, highly recommend and, oh, wow, I just, I felt like that book taught me so much. Um, and so just, you know, kind of seeking out other resources. I want to put a, put a plug in there. Um, and then, yeah, my own reaction to this book. Wow. I, I felt like it was extremely cutting um, and not, not full of redemption and not full of hope and just very on the nose and, and kind of harsh in some ways. Um, I f- also just, I, f- I found it hard to follow at some points just because it kind of winds and curves and it's not, it's, it's not a total like narrative and he's not also making points kind of point by point. He's, it's kind of a weave, I guess I would say he writes in like a weaving way. So I, sometimes parts I had to read a couple times to try and follow where he was going. Um, wow. I really agree with kind of what Rhett said that I felt like I got an intimate, experience of someone's life and i i i really appreciated the kind of the closeness and the sharing of it all and i i i I think that's some of the moments that stick in my head are those intimate moments of like him and prince um jones yeah um, his mother in that living room thinking about their life so we'll, we'll dig into some of those moments um but yeah, and then to, to just get us started on on talking about the book, I think it is kind of told chronologically. So he opens up with this um, example or the story of him kind of talking to an anchor. But but really, the first important part of the book is where he's talking about Baltimore and he's talking about growing up as a kid. And I'm excited to talk about that with with you all because you know we all grew up together, and there's a huge contrast between kind of the rules that we learned and the and what, you know, the society we were growing up in and kind of what he describes. So I want to just pass it off to, to one of you to kind of talk about this opening part and the childhood and the stories he tells um, and, and, and just kind of to, to expand upon that. So take it away, Taylor. <laughs> um, yeah, so there were a lot of th- like just listening to everybody. This is how this always goes, but just listening to everybody, there's like a lot of things that came and went through my mind. Um, but keeping on topic, I guess. <laughs> uh, what I found really fascinating about this part um, was him talking about kind of like being set up in two different ways like through his childhood one is like having to navigate his way through the streets which is this very dangerous place you know but it's kind of like what was left to his community you know and it's all these people who are dealing with basically this societal kind of power struggle basically uh where you know 
for hundreds of years, these types of communities were pushed, pushed aside or down, you know? And so it's like this weird, like something completely foreign to what we're used to or like, you know, he, he talks about just expending so much energy trying to not find danger and like not sticking out and all this kind of stuff so that he could make it home every day. You know, <laughs> there's that aspect and right, I'll give you it here in a second. There's that aspect. And then there's basically the other aspect, which is this systemic kind of white. What do I want to say? Like the school system basically is designed by the white people basically to kind of make them conform to what is acceptable for their their society basically. So it's like these two, like he's given these two options that are both terrible and he doesn't really trust either of them. He thinks that he thinks that school is a waste of time and that they're actually teaching them just useless crap to further like push them down. And then there's this other side, which is much more direct, right? Would you rather learn about like he uses French as an example a lot? Would you rather use French class? Like, why would you ever need to learn French if you pretty much know you're not going to go to France ever. He talks about that multiple times. Or would you rather like learn what people on the street uh, are looking for, you know, so that you don't get hurt? Like that one has much more direct consequences, immediate consequences, but maybe in the long run isn't as damaging depending. I don't know. So that was just like this crazy, it's just so foreign to me. And it makes me just feel bad because he's talking about this as being a little kid, you know, not even a teenager. Like mm-hmm. I would be scared to be there now and I'm almost 30, <laughs> you know? So what Old did man. you have to say? Right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Rhett? Um, it wasn't anything super pertinent but it got me thinking you know you're talking about this idea of, like being switched on at all times you know, on the streets you know um, and that's something that he reiterates time and time again for the first several pages of the book you know I think he really sums it up on page nine by pretty much saying you know it's like you screw up and you can you can be destroyed because that's all that happened to you know all these other people like Eric Garner and all that type of stuff just one slip up and you'll be ruined um, but it uh, when you're talking about that whole concept being turned on and, and and looking over your shoulder for trouble and 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 as he says like you know knowing the language of the streets and knowing the way of the streets it really it kind of reminded me and it's not the, quite the same thing but I related to it when I was reading through the book it's like uh, you know <laughs> when you're traveling to a place you've never been and you know you're anxious about you know being surrounded by people that don't know the language and being surrounded by l- l- you know law enforcement with whom you do not share a common language and uh, surrounded by customs of which you know nothing about. And it's just like, you're constantly turned on. Like, even though you might be in a safe place, you are going to spend some time like looking over your shoulder and doing that whole thing and trying to, trying to learn, you know, like he says, like the way of the streets (laughs) in a sense, just because you don't want to screw up. 
you don't want to be caught with, you know, your foot in your mouth or something like that. I, I don't know. It's not the same at all, but that's kind of the way I related to that when he was talking that. So, I, and then, I mean, like just that talk about like the, the streets, and the element of, of, um, how that could swallow you up pretty quickly. I think one of the things that when I open this up, like there's the, it starts with like the, the, it's a segment from a poem and, uh, by Richard Wright where, you know, the last line is in the city details of the scene rose thrust themselves between the world and me. Did anybody, uh, what I did was I went and like looked up that entire poem. Did any, anybody get a chance to like read that? So, uh, this was like, really impactful to read and sets like a, a good precedent, which I think really kind of ties into like this, this thing about how the, the streets can swallow you up is basically uh, this poem is written by this guy who stumbles upon a, a lynching scene where a black guy was tarred and feathered and burned alive. And so what he walks upon is like this, this scene where there's like a, you know, charred skull on the ground. And like, there's some very descriptive imagery where all of a sudden he's becoming this, this person that's found this scene is becoming this person that was burnt and tarred and feathered. And then he goes through to describe that process and what it was like to watch all these people around him. And, uh, I did a little research on, on what that poem meant. And basically it was that easily that like, that he just stumbled upon that, but that could have very easily have been him. It could have been any of them. It could have been anyone that was black. And I think that's the thing about what you're looking about, like what's the difference in growing up is, I mean, without reason, it could have been any of them that got lynched in that scene. And without reason, it could have been any of them that lost their lives growing up in Baltimore. We, we never faced anything like that. And if we were going to get it, get into trouble, it was because, we got ourselves there. Yeah. And it's, I, I set up this comparison and now that we're talking it through, I'm like, maybe this is a shitty comparison. <laughs> you know, like it's so well, disconnected in some ways. But I mean, that's like the, that disconnect is like why it, it's so powerful that like we can recognize like how different that is. Like we recognize we're not even close. And I, I think that's why it's partially powerful. Well, I think too, like, now that you've explained that to me, the the title of the book is just beautiful. Like, I almost feel like this book was, even though it is for his son, I feel like it was made for people like us who are so disconnected. You know, he, he even talks like, I keep saying the dreamers, we'll get to that. But he even says basically to his son, like, don't expect like the dreamers, the white people to change their minds. Like you have to be, you have to kind of stand up for yourself and do it on your own because they're not going to change. But then at the same time, he's like putting this deep and powerful story of his out into the world, like to do good. And here we are, like we're just stumbling upon this. And now, now we're kind of, like Danny said, we're kind of like seeing it as in like, wow, that could have been us. What can we do now to like help this? Yeah. And I, I think before we dive more into like this childhood stuff, I, I love that we've pulled back to kind of bigger themes in the title. And I will say when I first read the title and I thought, oh, between the world and me, I thought it was kind of like you're having a nice chat between you and the world. And it's just like friendly <laughs> 
sitting next to you on a couch, you know, having a chat with your son. And then I read the poem. I, I didn't read the full, I didn't do the full research like you did, Danny, but I immediately, it, the stage is set for it to be like a distance and and painful. Yeah. So I think it is a beautiful title. And I do just reading or seeing him in a couple interviews about the book that I watched. I think he's, white people are definitely an audience for this. And I think that's why it's important for us to read it and talk about it. And I know one thing I wanted to bring up, which he talks about in this opening section is about how, you know, white people were something else before they were white, you know, German, Welsh, Catholic, Jewish. And if we're going to have any chance, they're going to have to go back to those things or, you know, they're going to have to like start being a little more thoughtful, being a ton more thoughtful about their whiteness. And, and also Taylor, you brought up the things around kind of dreamers, which we can talk about more, but wow, I was this, that's one of the moments of the book where he talks about how we have been kind of brainwashed to believe that we are white and in doing so it's caused all of this trauma. And that really struck me and I hadn't thought about that before. Did anyone else really like, okay, Taylor? I, well, I just want to share a quote, which I thought was pretty powerful. On page eight, he said, whiteness was ascribed by conquering and pillaging and denying others their own freedom, which is also this theme throughout the book where it's just this systemic thing where the America and specifically America, right? It's not just white people in general. I feel like it's very specific to America because we were so into slavery back in the day. Yeah, I lost my train of thought. Go ahead, Rhett. Sorry, man. I was waiting. But uh, to flesh out that quote a little bit more, um, he, I think he makes it. I, I think what part of what makes his quotes like very, very poignant and powerful is like how much of a slap in the face they are to people like us. And it's a real wake up call because you can't disagree with anything he says. You know, he just says it matter of factly, but. But the wording is just so blatant and so powerful. You know, a part of that quote, he said, uh, he said, becoming white was not the result of wine tasting and ice cream socials. It's built on the pillaging of life, liberty and labor and land. Which I think expounds upon the part of the quote that you gave. Yeah, yeah. So what I was, I guess what I was trying to basically say was the America that we knew and have known growing up was basically built on suffering. You know, and this remind part of this reminded me a lot of *Sapiens*, which was let's not forget the individual suffering that we have put on less fortunate people or beings. You know, to get to where we are. Oh gosh, <laughs> yes, and I and I I think this is good, and we'll I think we can kind of pull back into this because that you know what we're talking about now sets the scene for the whole book. But yeah, just just thinking about going back to him being a kid in Baltimore, I was also shocked by the random violence. And I and there's that powerful scene where the kid just at a random local convenience store like pulls a gun out and he's fine. You know, he he escapes and he's fine, but it kind of wakes up. It, he realizes like I just that's how easy it is, you know, and and. Oh, that's a, it's such a scary world to live in and, and think about. And it's still happening. You know, it wasn't, this wasn't just the eighties in Baltimore. Like it's still cities around the country where this happens. And 
Yeah. I think that first part really, really hit home for me just because it's, yeah, it was, I had, I had never read a story from someone talking about their life that young and it being kind of that close to the edge. Yeah. Go for it, Danny. Uh, just to like kind of the, the quote that I wrote down that just to kind of go off of your point was, you know, it, it, I think it helped highlight for me, just like the, the difference between those, that world and ours was, he says there, you know, I grew up with this recognition that there were other worlds where children did not regularly fear for their bodies, you know, and it's just like what you're talking about there, where it's just, that was life, you know, I mean, and, and I think he talks about sitting in front of the TV and like seeing these TV shows where it's like, oh, there's a, there's like a world out there that's like, it's this fairy tale land. It's not reality. Um, but it exists somewhere, but you know, maybe I'll be part of it someday. Um, and just knowing that, like, <laughs> we have, we, we were the ones, we lived in that world that he saw that, that was that dreamland. But, um, yeah, it's just very draw. He does it in a way that just kind of draws the emotion out of you to help you understand. I can't remember exactly what he calls them either, but he always calls like watching those TV shows, uh, basically like, you know, uh, I can't remember the exact word, but like telegrams from the suburbs, you know, these like these broadcasts of like normalcy, you know, normalcy to like white suburbia. And like you said, it is our life, but it's so far removed from him that he's calling them, you know, God, I, w- I wish I could remember the exact word, but he uses it several times throughout the book. You know, he's getting these these broadcasts from white suburban America. And it's like, oh, shoot, it may as well be an alien world the way he's describing it. It may, what you're what you're both kind of talking about um and and what you said danny makes me think of something i was struck by which is the physical nature of the book and he's talking about bodies and he's talking about violence against those bodies and it, i think i'd be interested in what what you all have to to say about that kind of language but i was immediately kind of struck with the seriousness of that because he wasn't beating around the bush you know it was your body's in danger it's very physical and like you're in danger and there's people are going to harm you and they're going to harm your body and it yeah what, what did you all think of kind of that like very visceral to poignant language i think uh the, the one of the bigger quotes like one of you know if i were to think of the uh the quotes that struck me the most uh, it was, you must remember that the sociology, the history, the econ- economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence on the body. And, um, you know, not only is his language very clear about what he means by that, but I think I think you could kind of see that in, um, I don't know if a metaphorical way is, is the right term to use, but like, it's like, okay, he's saying that to like add gravitas to what he's saying, but it is it, not actually going to be violence on the body. But then he kind of goes further on in the book to kind of spell out exactly how that does end up becoming directly violence on the body. And uh, I think that's something that uh, when he when he is coming out and he is saying these very um, serious things, like he's not just throwing them out there. I think he does a good job throughout the book of of giving you a pretty logical chain to follow to understand that like, this is a very real thing that I'm saying. And I think that was a very impactful part of the book overall. Yeah. Um, I've been digging for a quote for a while and I can't find it, but he talks about the body like throughout the whole book. And I think one of the main reasons he talks about the body is 
because of its like its permanence to him, right? He doesn't he specifically says that he's an atheist and he doesn't he doesn't believe that there's an afterlife. So all of the horrible things that are happening to African Americans are permanent. This is what they get. And the fact that like they rolled the dice and theirs was like not a good number, it, it's permanent. And kind of the fact that society society is like using weighted dices or whatever against them, it just feels so hopeless, you know? He has this one I, I can't remember the exact page, but he has this one very long, maybe like two or three paragraphs, couple pages part where he's talking about like the individual experience of of this slave woman and just how sad it is basically that she looks back generations and generations and like just sees the same thing over and over about her ancestors' bodies being controlled and punished, you know, to build the foundations of America to basically fulfill the dream, you know, of like the white picket fence with the two cars and a TV or whatever. It's like, it's just so powerful. Yeah. I think Taylor, what you were getting after there, um, again, like, you know, he's, he's, you know, using verbiage and, and terms and things that are really impactful. And I think, you know, sometimes for me where if I was hearing a lot of that and it was just a lot of kind of, um, you know, things to, to get people stirred up, uh, I, you know, I might discredit it a little bit, but, you know, you're talking about like the, the, he, he talks about like how, you know, the United States was built on the backs of slaves, which I think we all, we all know, but he also goes on to describe the, the the actual value of that slave labor and it was like four billion dollars you know it's worth more than the entire infrastructure of the nation or something to that to that effect and i again i i think that's one of the things that he did a lot that i really appreciated yeah i found right. that part interesting oh sorry no go for it taylor sorry <laughs> yeah i found that part interesting that specific part about the four billion dollars because that $4 billion was like so much money back then. And the fact that like people, that money just belonged to them. It made it that much harder to stop slavery. Right. Like Mm -hmm. when you add, when you add money to it, people get pissed off. I mean, people get mad about going to the store and like not getting their refund of grapes or whatever for $5. Like when you add, four billion dollars in the 1800s that's an insane amount of money yeah I it's think, like what a crazy uphill battle i think that said, had to happen <laughs> i think he said and sorry to keep interrupting you but i think he said uh at one point too it's like because he was really fascinated with the civil war and i don't want to jump ahead too much but uh, one of the things about like related to that that really struck me was like when uh you know they were trying to uh, outlaw slavery you know mississippi was just like yeah mississippi's culture is too tightly like ameshed with th- that of slavery and so we can't abide this sorry like <laughs> we're we're seceding from the nation <laughs> like good yeah. luck to you all we're gonna still have slavery down here though because you know money and 
when that actually, um, I know I, I had talked about the case of reparations, which is the article he wrote that made him famous. I think before reading that, I, my thoughts about reparations were kind of like, no, I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't thought about this much. I, I don't know anything about this. And I feel like going into that article, imagine like a hundred of those factoids like that $4 billion number that just keep instructing you on exactly like what was happening, how it was disenfranchising African-Americans and how it was decade by decade up till like now. And so it, it does make it, it kind of takes it out of the realm of opinion because he's not just saying, Hey, I, you know, this wasn't great. Or I, I think this might've hurt some people. He's just telling about like, this was a government program that gave free houses to all these GIs. And guess what? No black people got these free houses. So then you gave all this wealth to the white, you know, created a white middle class and totally excluded all these other people who also fought in the war. And it, this is just a fact. And he just kind of keeps listing fact after fact. And, Honestly, it makes it really approachable, and I and I think if if you have at all, you know, a piece of your mind is open, I think it it can really like speak speak to you because it's it's just so based in this is what happened. Um, okay, and then yeah, Rhett, you said you had some questions to, that you that were on your mind. You wanted to to ponder to the group. Yeah, and they're uh, established like right at the beginning of the book, basically. Um, I se- I seriously think it was like the first like 12 pages of this whole book were just like, it it was like a deluge of great quotes and things like that. Um, Yeah, I had, uh, I had like pages where it was like, okay, I wrote more than one series of notes on every single page for like 15 straight pages. It's like, uh, yeah, the beginning of the book is very dense. And, uh, and also I think it's very, uh, if you're a person like me, aka white <laughs> like very privileged uh it can be a hard pill to swallow uh but this is uh this quote the first one that i want to talk to you guys about is something that um that i have thought about a lot and like at some point like feel guilty about and maybe it's just because of the way that i interpret the same thing that he says here maybe i interpret it incorrectly but on page seven he says Race is the child of racism. What what do you guys think about that? Do you agree? Do you disagree with that? Like, what do you think he's trying to say here? Like he said, he and he says he says race is the is the child of racism, not the father specifically. So he's saying that, or excuse me, it comes from racism. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't uh, create racism. Um, I've so I also wrote that quote down actually. Um, I think what he's really just trying to get it and i could be wrong i haven't taken any classes or anything like that on this kind of thing but i think what he's basically trying to just say is that we're all equal and race we we define people's races because of racism right is there really a need to do that because then it kind of leads to these systemic like hierarchies right which and see, and shouldn't be how they are. And that's exactly like what I think is because like as a person who's like well aware of like my privileged spot in life, it's like, yeah, I think that like things like affirmative action like need to be real. Like, you know, people need to, I think, have an edge in the hiring field and in the scholastic field 
because they belong to a minority. You know, that's like part of the price we pay for like subjugating people for hundreds of years, right? Like not the price we pay. That sounds so horrible, but it's like, you know, it's, it's like you're just evening the playing field out because of people's intrinsic biases. And he even says this over and over and over. It's like, well, I'm not racist, but then their biases lead them to hire all white people, you know, in the, at their workplace instead of, (laughs) instead of if they had no biases, they would likely have a very diverse work field. And if the people that came before them had no biases, you just grow up with this way of things. And because of that, it, it naturally sort of like dissuades minority people from getting jobs at the factory because like, well, you know what? We can't get hired there and all this other sort of stuff. So now we have it so that, well, you need to have five black people on the payroll and five Asian people on the payroll and you need, and this sort of thing, right? Oh, Jesus Christ. What was I saying? Now I just sound like an asshole. Uh, (laughs) so it's like, I definitely think that like, okay, people need to be aware of that. And I think it's like one way of making people aware is by having them like check a box. And then you look and you say, we need another black person in the office. We need another Pacific Islander in the office. We need another whatever in the office. And because they need to see the check boxes to be reminded of that. But at the same time, you know, I've often wondered, you know, if that, doesn't make it more easy to sort of like hash people into groups and thus continually progresses like racist ideas and things like that. Right. I don't know. Everything I said is bullshit. This is bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) I think Danny is wanting to chime in. Danny, go for it. Got to unmute, bro. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm back. I'm back. There it is. is. Yeah. yeah. Back like a heart attack. (laughs) I don't, I don't know. Anyways, moving on. Uh, so your question about race versus racism or, you know, uh, race is the child of racism and, and how can that be? And I thought that was one of the most interesting things about the book, one of the most interesting concepts to learn, because, you know, think of it this way, like you're a tribe some somewhere and there's another group or another tribe that you like. We don't like that tribe and your little uh, son comes up to you and says like to some random other tribe, like he doesn't know if they're the tribe you hate or not. They're just another tribe. Right. So it's like it started, though. It also it, like so you need to classify which tribes are which so you know which one you hate. Right. Um, but that need to classify only came because you hated one in the first place. You know, and at least that's kind of how I understood that. And I, I, th- I thought that was uh, just a. A very enlightening point of view. But real quick before Kurt goes, like, does that mean that you think that if we like did away with the check boxes as it was, that that could mean like sort of like the demise of racism? I think this is one of those internal dialogues that I had that was, well, not this one specifically, but there was this internal dialogue of like constantly in this book, I'm like, okay, how do we solve this problem and how does it get better? And um, it, it's interesting to, to think about that, but within the book, I, I was never sure if I was able to, to say whether or not I should even be having that thought, if there's a better way to interpret the book. But yeah, I mean, I think it definitely is an intriguing question that I don't have the answer to, unfortunately. Right. And I didn't mean to imply I, that, that anybody actually thought one way or the other. I was just curious. Um, go ahead, Kurt, real quick, and then Taylor, you chime in. 
Yeah, I definitely. So this is something I, I have read about and heard a couple of speeches about. So I, I feel like I have some I- info, although I haven't. There, there are really interesting books on like the history of race and racism, and that that would be worth reading. But from what I've read, it race is a pretty recent concept, and it's a pretty American trick concept that we basically invented. And this, then the the really um, kind of striking story that I have been told is thinking about like you're in Virginia, there's a plantation owner that's trying to control, you know, the slaves on that plantation. Around the plantation, there's kind of poor farmers who might be from all over Europe. So some Scandinavians, some Scottish, you know, just, just like people from all over that identify as that. Those, those farmers are poor. They're, they kind of like ally with the black slaves because they're all kind of in a situation where the plantation owners are taking advantage of them. The, the plantation owners see this and they think, holy shit, this is not good because it's kind of like all of the poor people are ganging together against me. What can I do? And then so then like these kind of elites use and kind of invent race as a way to separate you know, they say, oh, yeah, we know you're Scottish and Norwegian and blah, blah, blah. But guess what? We're all white and we are better than this these these black people. And then it drives a wedge between poor people that should be united and fighting for more justice. So I think that that's definitely one of the origin stories that I, I think is pretty much verified. And I think that he's distilling in this quote is that to divide people that would otherwise be united, which is poor whites and poor blacks. Instead, the like kind of elite ruling class decides to drive a wedge between those groups and say, hey, guess what? You are, who cares? Poor, you're still white, you're still with us, and that's better. And you don't need more because you're white and, and you know, things are good for you. And so I think that's, he's trying to distill some of that history in saying that racism um, created race. And I think that he even sort of backs up your point or I, I think your point is sort of supported by what he says that that right off the bat he calls white people not just white people but people who think they are white and he refers to them as people who think they're white throughout the whole book for me that made me feel like there was hope for me <laughs> you know what i mean it's like i'm white but Maybe I'm better than just a white person, you know? And yeah. and I hear people, plenty of people from Willamette joking about, like, stupid white people, you know? And then they're white or whatever, you know? Makes me feel like maybe I, by challenging myself and trying to not be associated with white people, quote unquote, like, maybe there's hope for me to be understanding and be a good person who can help people all over the world, you know? Yeah. And I I think that's kind of what he calls us to do is obviously we can't get away from that. You know, I've met people in D.C. who are white and are trying to say they're like past their whiteness, you know, like, oh, you know, but I'm so so enlightened now that I'm I'm hardly white anymore. And I think, well, you're okay, you're still (laughs) white as, as like we understand this term. But I think there's understanding your own heritage and background and pulling like the German side out of that and saying, Oh, that is, that's a culture. And I can think about that. And it, 
it makes me like tied to this country and people and practices. And that I think that's part of what he's talking about. And then, yeah, like you're saying, diving into cultures like this book and, and trying to then understand how that influences our shared identity. Um, and I don't want to stay on this topic too long because I know we have some exciting things coming up in the book. Um, lastly, before we head out of this chapter, I, I think just something that brings, brings like this very viscerally to the floor in this conversation we had kind of to a good close is he talks about, and I love this quote, good intentions are a hall pass through history. And, and I, I, I really, you know, think that he preempts a lot of like apologizing or excuses by saying that, you know, and I think that those are, those are definitely feelings I've had in the past when I've heard about atrocities or violence that's historical. It's kind of like, well, it was a long time ago and I'm sure these people were meaning well. And, you know, like he basically says, this is not an excuse and like ignoring it and brushing it off is what we always do. And that's what the system does. And that's not right. I don't know how far I want to go into my psyche or whatever, but I typically think that I'm a coward. (laughs) And so (laughs) that quote was just kind of a wake up call. Like, I don't ever really want to get into any kind of conflict with people, you know, like especially lately because my political views have changed quite a bit over the last 10 years or so. It's like you go to like Thanksgiving or whatever (laughs) and you don't want to like rock the boat, but then you're like, (laughs) what are these people saying? (laughs) I mean, there's a way of, of fighting back tactfully or whatever, you know, like just think about that quote when you're, when you're in the midst of like letting somebody say something racist or like sexist or whatever. It's interesting because it's, something I think about a lot because a lot, like you talk to most people, you can go and poll a hundred people on the streets and almost every single one of them believes that they are a good person. Um, and it's something that I had to like start internally considering. It's like, well, what does it mean to be a good person? Like I, th- I think I'm a good person, but my definition is based solely off of myself, right? It's like, yeah, I don't intend to like hurt anybody, but how many times have I hurt somebody? Like we aren't a, we aren't a uh, composite of like our intents. Like we're a composite of our, our actions, you know, and even complacency and like non-action is an action. And by like not saying anything, like when somebody is like being victimized or like something terrible is happening, like, that doesn't necessarily make you a good person. Like non-action doesn't make you a good person. Um, like you can sit on your couch and just like have like all of these like terrible things like happening right outside your window. And if you never do anything about it, like your good personhood is like one phone call away. If something is being victimized outside, you know, call the police, call your other neighbors and like, <laughs> hopefully somebody else can like intervene, you know, if, but most people think, that they're good people and the truth is is like most people are guilty of lying or they're guilty of cheating or they're guilty of stealing and whether or not the crime is like really severe and deserves like criminal punishment it doesn't matter it just matters like you know i don't know but it's inter- it, it, it's something that i think about a lot it's not just enough 
you know, and I think like the idea of good intentions is like, it's like an intoxicant to people and it's enough to just like let them coast through life when all these terrible things are happening. Yeah. I think, I think you're, uh, I think you're spot on there, Danny. (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's this little icon on the bottom right of the screen and it's the wrong one and God damn it. Um, I think, you know, just to kind of segue, like I struggled with this book uh, in certain areas and, and uh, I think there were, there was an element of it that like I didn't necessarily appreciate so much. And one of the things that challenged me a little bit was the fact that I feel like he talks about white people in general, like there's a very broad brush painted with and right. You asked question, what does it mean to be a good person? And most people think they're good people. And I don't think I'm the best person in the world, but I don't think I'm a bad person. And I don't think I would have chosen to uh, create the systems or install the systems that have led to these problems. But I did feel like at times this book, I felt I felt blamed reading the book sometimes. And that was that was a sentiment that I didn't always necessarily appreciate. That wasn't that's not an encapsulation of how I felt about the book in its entirety. I think I was able to, you know, digest uh, the book for its various parts. And I think what's like really important to like sort of take away from a lot of what the book says is like, yeah, you might feel like in particular, like I did all the time, I felt blamed or like guilty or responsible for a lot of the things that he was writing even though like yeah i had no direct hand in any of it um but a quote i i don't remember the exact quote but he says at one point in the book that and he's talking directly to his son he says it is it's going to be imperative for you to remember that slavery was not just destined to end on its own it ended because people ended it and i think that ties like directly into this you know it's like you, you know, you or us rather uh, as people who aren't necessarily not bad people, it's important like when these terrible things are happening to like, remember, it's like, well, it's, we can think like, well, that's just destined to end or that's, you know, the Congress will take care of that or our city leaders will take care of that. When the truth is like bad things don't go away until good people do things about them. I really like that perspective. Danny, and I think a lot of people reading this book, especially, I mean, I think a lot of people reading this book would feel that and maybe stronger, you know? Um, I do think that, you know, in, in some ways that's his point, that, like, it's on us to stop what's happening. And and it really, it, it really goes against people who kind of have that doctrine of personal responsibility that says like, oh, you should be picking yourself up and you should be working hard and you can make it through. And he does not even entertain that. He, he kind of says, look, it's on it's on the people in power in the system to, to change it, to stop like the violence. And that's not on us. So, but but I think it's good to like voice that that discomfort. And that's something we can kind of talk about as we go through. I want to just push us on to the next part, just because I think this was a bit of a ray of hope in the book. Um, And I'm here in DC, right next to Howard University, I could walk there in like 20 minutes. So yeah, you know, he leaves high school, he leaves Baltimore, and he goes to this place that has basically two incarnations. One is Howard University, the academic institution. And the other is what he calls the Mecca, which is like the energy of all these so-called what he calls African peoples injected in the student body, uh, the vastness of black people across space time. Just these great 
descriptions and it's full of love. It's full of him kind of reading all these books and developing theories and then questioning them. Um, and him just really reveling in the community and, and the culture and, and kind of like, yeah, I just thought it was a really beautiful experience. Um, and yeah, I want to just open it up to kind of people share their thoughts on this section. We're, we're going to talk about this and then we're going to loop back around to kind of our impressions at the beginning as like a halfway point just to expand on some of those. And then we'll keep diving through the book. So he's at Howard. He's at the Mecca. He's reading. He's meeting people. What were you guys' takes? Um, I'll take it first. Um, but what I thought was really interesting, so it's like the first part of the book, you know, he's talking about it's like the realities of like blackdom i guess it's just like the reality as he interprets it it like it defines his universe right and then he goes to howard and it's all about like his academic pursuits of blackdom his scholastic studies of like what it means to be black and not just for him but like per, for people around the world and like you said um howard was filled with um people of like really diverse backgrounds and in fact like one of uh, one of the people that really shapes his perspective of like violence against the black body um prince jones uh thank you um you know it's like you find out well very later on it's like he came from a very not affluent um but you know an educated background i guess is the way to put it best you know he came from a very different background than um some of the other stories that we hear about um and the fact that he's like exposed to that and he just like he fully sort of like enmeshes himself in it and just dives right into the deep end. Um, and he asks himself like I think really amazing questions is like a black man like coming into like his um, you know his place in the world and trying to like sort it out. And I think like one of my favorite uh, parts that he's talking about <laughs> is like when he is discovering all of these like black voices throughout history and you know he lists them off and one of the one of the things that he asks or somebody asks i don't remember exactly who but he mentions it several times throughout the books is like who is the tolstoy of the zulus and uh and you know somebody later on is just like well tolstoy is the tolstoy of the zulus like (laughs) (laughs) but one of the questions that he asked that like really struck me is like interesting and i think can only be asked by someone who is like really struggling to like find like understand their heritage in the world that they live in like the universe as shaped by living in the Balt in baltimore in the 80s um he says uh on page 47 if the 18th dynasty pharaohs were alive today would they live in harlem and he's he's writes that as he's like sort of discovering that black people have this like very 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 rich heritage that way back when like had nothing to do with slavery and had nothing to do with the united states and had nothing to do with cotton plantations or anything like that but it's an interesting question to ask i don't know it just made me think a lot yeah he was talking about um this one particular book i can't remember what it's called off the top of my head i know i wrote it down somewhere that he called i think he called it his bible it was basically about like like the history of africa basically and man i looked up that book i want to i want to save that for one of our one of our episodes maybe but yeah i found this this whole section really interesting because he enters college having like read malcolm x and like his dad was part of the black panther 
Is that right? And then his his grandfather was like a reference librarian, and he used them both as like resources to learn a lot a lot about like the history of of Africa and and things like that. And I think he kind of just came into college almost like armed, you know. He was like ready for a fight, and I don't know. It, it was so interesting to see how basically he went into the library and just like that was like what he did for so long like he just read and read and read because that was how he found how he like became empowered was by reading all these stories about his history and his ancestry and all that kind of stuff but then he came to Howard there was just such a a diversity in these black populations there um you know all kinds of different cultures within the African-American culture that he's known, basically. And I think that's when he really kind of started learning about the world more so. He had like a, a much more broad perspective of what the world is. And it's it's funny, I mean, because all of us going to college, I think, kind of get that same experience where we go to college and we don't we don't have as much perspective maybe as we thought we did. And so I had a similar feeling, kind of. And then a couple things that were really interesting was like his relationships with women really kind of like softened him. He, I feel like he didn't feel so angry. So that was interesting. I, one of his relationships I found really interesting because it kind of exposed him to gay culture and people who had like an open marriage and all this stuff. And uh, he had this one quote where basically he was talking about like, you know, like different people, quote unquote. And he said, like, basically, like, there they are dressed in their human clothes. I was like, yeah, they're just normal people. Um, and then he says, I am black and I have been plundered and have lost my body. But perhaps I, too, have the capacity for plunder. Maybe I would take another human's body to confirm myself in a community perhaps i already had which uh sounds like maybe i <laughs> maybe i stole that from danny <laughs> but that was just like so powerful to me because i was getting like really pissed off and angry like reading up to that point and then it kind of like made me feel a little more at ease you know like no one's perfect um we all have a lot to learn there are you know billions of different experiences all around us that we don't understand you know so it's really important to learn about those different experiences to make our lives better and everyone else's lives better um and then that kind of resulted later in the birth of his son which is the most life-changing of all things that happened to him and the purpose of the book basically so i just want to chime in on that but like that, that was me being supportive and I was jazzed that like we'd both highlighted this, the same kind of uh, big moment. But I, I think that's one of the things in talking about, like, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying about feeling blamed. And um, I think if you're reading this book, him being able to say, say this and be self-reflective in that way and say, say that like, you know, maybe I have the capacity for plunder. The amount of credibility that gives him is, is so powerful that he's, he's, He's also putting himself up there to be improved and, and be called to be better. Yeah, I I 
this is awesome. I love the the connection between Danny and Taylor there. Um, I totally agree, and I I think charting his his path, he like you're saying, he's like loving these women, and that opens his heart more. He kind of starts showing a little more emotion, and then it helps him transform also in his treatment of kind of these this gay population, which is amazing and a growth. And then the the third one that I would identify is he also he kind of invents his own dream, which is that black people are perfect and like there's this black perfection and you know power, and he's so proud. And then he starts having to unpack that because there's flaws in this like queen that he reveres where she kept slaves as well. And like, what does that mean? And, and I, I like that. And I think this is, again, the whole point of this podcast is to like believe in something and then tear it apart and see what actually is there. And it, it, it's pretty cool that he, he like stumbles onto this belief of, Oh, I have my own dream and it's the black dream. And like, we're so powerful. We're amazing. And then he, you know, in the span of four years, he takes that apart and he says, never mind. And I, I think what you're saying, Danny, I totally agree with what that gives him a ton of credibility too, that he, he's not going to replace one for the other. He's going to just try and see the world as it is as much as possible and not, not believe in his own fantasy. And we were, we've, we've talked about, you know, just, when you when you brought this up to me, just kind of distilling the idea of this podcast, I mean that I, I think that's something that you touched on there that is really cool, and and uh, especially this being the first book that I'm a part of, um, that idea of breaking things down and knowing what the inside is like is not not just really impressed in how he handles himself and how he does that, but it's very much you know kind of maybe a guide for us in in how we want to go about doing what we're doing. Totally. Um, and yeah, and then I, I know this is brought up. So to, to move us into the next part, oh, we we start in a really emotional 20, 25 pages or so, kind of as we hit this middle section, um, because his son is born and, and that's a place where he now has to, to really become a lot more mature and, and kind of like grow into being an adult. And then at this very shortly after, Prince Jones is killed and it kind of inspires in him this um, time of reflection and sadness that then drives his writing more than ever. Yeah. If it's okay. Um, Cause I think like there's like two or three pages in here that uh, I think like resonated with me almost like more than any part of this book. And it was like the part uh, when his son is born and I think it had like one of my favorite quotes, which is like, I think like almost the most like beautiful depiction of like bringing a person into this world than anything that I've ever read. And uh, he says on page 66, we'd summoned you out of ourselves and you were not given a vote. If for only that reason, you deserved all the protection we could muster. And for some reason, like oh, I was reading that at work and it just like brought me to tears because like there's so many people who came from such like quote-unquote better backgrounds than he did and here he is like getting down to just like give it the best that he can and i and i don't know why and then that like imagery of like you know i think he says in the in the sentence right before that he says like me and your mother like we never needed a ring you were our ring we summoned you out of ourselves which is like <laughs> i don't know it's just like the like one of the most beautiful ways i've ever heard it put and then uh, i know we gotta take a pause here in a second but 
the other thing that uh, he says, like right on the next page, uh, like really ties back into like this depiction of parenthood that he puts up, like this idea of parenthood. And like maybe he's putting it on a pedestal, but either way, it's still really beautiful. He says on page 67, there was before you and there was after. And in this after you were the God that I never had, which is like really like that's how like children should be to their parents you know it's like you brought these little creatures into this world and like you you absolutely need to like respect that and you absolutely need to give it the best you can like the same sort of like reverence that that uh, you might give your god in church on sunday needs to be given to your kids every day just scored points with my wife <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, that's so awesome. Okay, yeah. Let's take a quick pause here. We're going to come back and talk more about the birth of his son and the death of Prince Jones. And and we're also going to flash back to our opening summaries and and just kind of like step back from the chronological nature of the book and just talk some big picture things before we dive back in. So we'll see you again in a a minute. Thanks for listening. Really excited to have you and uh, more to come. did a pretty good job of tying a ribbon on this thing but before you go i want to remind you guys that this is a club a book club and if you're listening that means you're a part of this club uh, even if you haven't read the book if you've just enjoyed the discussion we really uh, would love to hear your thoughts and you can tweet them at us you can join the conversation uh, over on twitter we are at awesome book club but if that ain't enough you can email us your letters we are abc at airpodcast.com if you've read the book tweet us uh, what your thoughts were T- tell us what you loved what you hated but if you haven't Tell us what you thought about what we said and the way we presented the book. Uh, tell us what we can improve upon. And if you find yourselves with an overabundance of time and you want to help us out a little bit, uh, hop on over to iTunes, your favorite podcast platform of choice, and please, please, please leave us a rating and a review. They're basically the currency of the podcast world, and it's such an easy, simple thing for you to do, and it means so much to us, and it helps us connect with other like-minded people. Um, and it helps us maintain visibility on uh, all those different podcast platforms. It really means a lot to us. So thank you so much for listening, and please enjoy part two. Uh, You can find it the same place you found this one. Thanks so much.